everyone. Thank you for joining the Hunt Fish Thrive podcast. Hunt Fish Thrive connects outdoor experiences with mental health, quality relationships, and flourishing habitats. So we want to invite you in our conversation. And today we have a unique podcast called The Theory of Everything, How Bird Dogs Save the World. As we sat down to record this podcast, Mickey's uh, bird dog, Tiny, was expecting pups. And lo and behold, she began to have those pups during our podcast. So we thought it'd be very relevant to center our episode seven podcast around bird dogs and their significance to sustainable habitats and environments. So we drove to the Florida Keys, by the way, 22 hours total. Broke so down. when you get into Florida, you have another 10 hours or whatever. Oh yeah, it was crazy. Florida is, the funny thing is, it's like Texas. Yeah. And then a whole bunch of other states, yeah. and then Florida, because it yeah. was trans right. transecting, I guess is that word for exploration, yeah. the entire, yeah. literally the entirety of Florida, Yeah. right? Um, it's like literally drive east a long time, and then drive south a long and time. And then drive south a long time. <laughs> and then you're you're closer to Cuba and all this other stuff. And you're like, right? I drove almost to Cuba? And you're like, like it's like, kind of weird. Like on your Google Maps, <laughs> like when you're looking at the map, you can see Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> like on it and um, <laughs> that's pretty funny it's just, and you're like okay I, see I, I drove to Cuba I see why yeah. people like cross yeah. over because it's not that far yeah. um, you know as I was kind of thinking about today I was thinking about all these uh, just this metaphor you know me and my cutesy metaphors but all these side roads that I've been kind of going down in my mind mm-hmm. um, okay I gotta go check on this I'm, yeah we'll pause yeah absolutely pause. We'll come back on the side roads yeah because it could be the wine, or it could just be I'm tired of being inside or outside yeah. wine. I don't even know which dog it is that's whining. So we're sitting in my garage. Anybody listening might hear some, some whining or some howling in the background. We're out here. We had set up to record and film a podcast, but we had to do it at my house because today is the nine weeks to the day of Tiny, my Brittany bird dog, being due with puppies. And lo and behold, in the middle, not even in the middle, we were just starting our podcast and she started having puppies. As you maybe can hear the puppy. Puppy number one is here. We think she's going to have a whole bunch. Um, so we're just kind of babysitting right now and, and uh, hanging out and recording. And one of the things I got to thinking about that I've is, uh, you know, the state of upland bird hunting and upland bird populations in our nation is pretty abysmal, pretty low. So, for example, when I was a kid, so I was incredibly lucky to be born into, in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s when I was growing up. Shackleford County, Texas, was considered one of the best quail hunting, like the epicenter of amazing quail hunting. And I was born into a family that had a ranch, leased a ranch, um, right in the middle of Shackleford County, to a granddad who built his life around quail hunting. Hmm. 
Um, so Dale Rollins is considered by many to be one of the, if not the leading, Bob White quail biologist. Yeti even did one of their, their great videos on him. Um, Dale Rollins says the best friend of a quail is a rancher with a bird dog. Because there's something about, when you have a bird dog, the bird hunting becomes about them. It's not about killing a bunch of quail. It's not about the quail. It's not about you. It's about how can I get this wonderful animal on birds because of the joy that them being on birds brings to them and to you. Um, in fact, let me as an aside tell about the most epic quail hunting moment in my history and it really it's almost unbelievable that it happened so my granddad had two Britneys of male to female brother and sister I was probably 30 and we were doing a lot of quail hunting in those days this would have been uh, in the uh, in the early 2000s and uh, hey, tiny girl, she just won't settle down. So uh, we were quail hunting, and dogs point. They flush. We walk up on the point. We flush the covey of quail, mm -hmm. and I did miraculously because I'm not the greatest shot in the world, but I shot of what's called a left-right double. I swung left, shot a bird, no more birds that way. I swung over to the right, shot another bird. Two shots, two birds down. The two dogs went out and got the two birds. They were both coming back towards me and they did another thing that's like just so desired for and amazing about bird dogs. As they're coming back, with a bird in their mouth, just like Tiny's carrying around this puppy in her mouth. And it's one of the reasons I'm not too worried about the puppy, because a good bird dog should be soft-mouthed, right? That they can carry a, a bird in their mouth and not break the skin, so she can carry her puppy around and not hurt it. So these two dogs are coming back with a bird in their mouth, and about 10 yards from me, because I've not moved, they both point again. How can a dog differentiate between a bird that's been dead, or maybe not even dead, just wounded, for less than a minute, like an inch or less from their nose, but they can still smell a live bird in the grass out there? Isn't that just incredible? So they're coming back to me, both with the bird in their mouth, and they point. I walk in, flush a couple more birds, and left-right double. Hat trick. I don't even like telling the story because it sounds like, to be quite honest, it sounds like bullcrap because there's like two left-right doubles and the pointing with the bird in their mouth. 
things that happen in quail hunting for sure, but like are like once in a lifetime moments and all happened at the, in the same you know scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on that day. That's one of the greatest outdoors days of my life. You know. Um, so that's how special hunting with bird dogs. Just those moments. And so so a rancher with a bird dog, the reason Dale Rollins says that's the best friend of a quail is because to be quite honest, the, the range management, the grazing management that needs to happen to maximize benefit for quail, there needs to be a lot more grass on the land than a rancher would normally leave, right? But he's willing to do that for his bird dog's sake. And so it really does tie to an aspect of Hunt Fish Thrive. Because I believe, this is actually what we were going to podcast about today anyway. I'm just not introducing it like I planned on. But, but let's talk about it for a minute. So here's, I realized this morning, I was starting to say this when we were podcasting earlier, that I woke up this morning not having any idea what I wanted to talk about on our podcast today. And what ended up happening as I sort of tried to brainstorm and started preparing and getting inspired is I realized that hunt fish thrive is my theory of everything. And and I don't know if I can connect the dots, but 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 here's the thing. I don't have my notes in front of me. But I believe, and I believe that psychology validates this, that hunting and fishing is the ultimate of connecting with nature, of enjoying the outdoors. Now, when I say it's the ultimate, I'm not trying to say it's better than, I'm not trying to alienate anybody or or whatever. Maybe there are other things that are equally as ultimate. But psychology recognizes, anthropology recognizes, that, that there are these aspects of hunting and fishing that are just unique. And testimony of people who experience the outdoors in other ways also validates that. Um, people who are hikers or bird watchers or Olympians. Um, you know, I won't call out some names, but there's some Olympians that are big in hunting and fishing, and they'll say, listen, it just doesn't compare. The Olympics was awesome, but this hunting and fishing are flow state, to use a psychological term, like no other. And a couple of the elements of a flow state, flow state, a rudimentary definition of flow state is being in the zone. Is it kind of used? It goes beyond that, but but just this full embodiment, just being in it. Um, and hunting and fishing, and maybe even more uniquely, hunting bring about that where you are just totally immersed. Like I'm not a motorcycle rider, um, but motorcycle, but. But when I studied flow state, it was like, oh, I understand motorcycle riding now. Because full embodiment, the other two aspects are novelty. So it's kind of the three pillars of flow state are full, deep embodiment, flow state. Uh, sorry, I got distracted by. She's very restless. Deep embodiment, novelty, 
you know, there being unique things. Um, no, I said that wrong. Deep embodiment, rich environment, of which novelty is an aspect. Um, I don't have my notes in front of me. And there's, that there's an appropriate risk-reward factor, a challenge, right? Like riding a motorcycle is much more challenging than driving a car, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not, like, insane either, mm -hmm. right? Like, too much risk with too little reward, no flow state. So hunting and fishing really bring this. Whereas bird watching, and I love bird watching, um, um, really enriches my hunting and fishing, but there's no risk-reward, right? If I don't, if I... Um, you know, like hunting. I can't think of a good metaphor to that. Um, you know, she doesn't have this next puppy pretty soon. We're going we're to go in and leave her alone. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're... In fact, let's go ahead and do that right yeah. quick. So, yeah, we're, we, we actually moved. Again. Um, again. That was to give uh, Tiny that... Uh, not to be worried, Right. Probably, you know. We were, uh, we were wondering, let me say as a, you know, uh, uh, you know, if anybody listens to this or I don't know if we'll put it out as video, but um, I'm not an expert dog maternity ward runner. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some things I'm not doing right, but, um, but we were babysitting her after she had the first puppy and then... Um, we sat out there with her for about an hour. She didn't have any more. She was extremely restless the whole time we were out there. So we decided that maybe we'd I saw give her some was, space. Seemed like um, she had settled, and then she and then I felt like she began to escalate a little bit over yeah, time. And so yeah. even her circling and going back into the yeah. crate was going more and more and more and more. Right. It wasn't you know. So yeah. uh, at first I thought, oh, we're about to, to watch her have a pup because I think this was this anticipation of it but like you said it might have just been yes that's true but we're in her space and she doesn't feel whatever she needs to feel yeah yeah so so we gave her some space yeah. um we were talking about um you know that sitting there with a bird dog having more bird dogs um had had got me thinking about sort of how hunt fish thrive is for me this sort of theory of everything and trying to connect that um so i was talking about how i think hunting and fishing are an ultimate way to experience the outdoors and psychology validates this i was talking about flow state um and and how we enter um that flow state and there's so many that that talk about you know, it, it's not that hunting and fishing are better than other things, but even for themselves, whether they went from the Olympics or whatever, um, there's just something different about it. And even fishermen say that about hunters, about hunting a lot of times. And and and, but but that's not the end all be all. See, so for me, it being an ultimate enjoyment of the outdoors is is just the catalyzer. It's not the reason. And so, um, sorry, I'm really listening to these puppies and I heard uh, uh, some yelping. So, so hunting and fishing motivate. They create the demand that requires meeting with supply. And so the desire to hunting and fish then causes us to 
need to think about our systems of environmental management, right? So, and that can be in a lot of different ways, but some of these side roads I've been off on lately, um, you know, have been really keyed in around regenerative agriculture, restorative grazing, um, even doing a project on my land, taking land out of uh, farm production and turning it back into native grasslands to eventually then do some restorative grazing stuff. Um, who knows, we might have a Hunt Fish Thrive line of grass-fed beef at some point. I don't know. Um, but um, but that desire to hunt and fish causes one to look at how am I managing this land? Back to that Dale Rollins saying the best friend of a of quail is a rancher with a bird dog because it causes you to look at the land different. And I've even seen it in my lifetime, So, or even just in the last decade, once quail... Like we always had a problem because I used to be in the outfitting business and guiding and it was hard sometimes to get landowners to not overgraze their land to maximize their beef production. Makes sense. No bust. But then that would harm our quail hunting and they were monetizing their land through the quail hunting too and trying to help them understand well, you can't monetize the land through quail hunting if there's no quail if you overgraze it. So we're trying to meet this balance in the middle. When the quail disappeared, for whatever reason, they still say they don't know, um, then why not overgraze the land? Like, would you just remove that little bit of, well, maybe I don't want to overgraze it too much for the quail. Oh, there's no quail? Graze it like a pool table, right? As we kind of say it, you know, just, I mean, to the nub, you know, no grass. Well, then the quail, if they were going to come back, can't come back because they have no cover, Right? Um, again, so no criticism on anyone there, but that just changes things. Now, for me and my theory of everything, hunting and fishing provide that, that motivation, causes us to look at supply or, or uh, systems of management, and then how we feed into that system of management. So um, the power of the consumer. People have said this in different ways. Um, Somebody recently, you might think of it when, when, I can't even remember now who it was, but it might have been Elon Musk or somebody. But I, I kind of think it was. But anyway, it's like Einstein or Edison. You know, anything really smart we'll just attribute now to Elon Musk. He's the new Edison or Einstein. Um, he probably gets, both. He gets credit, gets credit and yeah. demonization for probably lots of things that he had nothing to do with. But, yeah. um, but the... the the most powerful force in the universe is the purchasing power of the consumer, supply and demand, you know. And, and there's just so much, as I've looked into these different systems of agriculture, wondering am I just distracting from Hunt Fish Thrive or do they fit? Yes, they fit because we can make so much change um, by purchasing in ways that benefit systems of agriculture, that benefit habitats, that benefit wildlife and clean water, fish coming from clean water. Am I saying that in a way that... May, it, 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 I don't know if that's well, obvious I, I, or if I'm saying that in a way that's like confusing and convoluted. Let me confirm and see you know, if I understand the concept. Mm -hmm. um, 
is, you know, or, you know, having intention with the choices we make in, uh, with the habitats mm -hmm. and going about, you know, as you were kind of laying it out, matter. Yes. Um, our, and that's true. Even our purchasing be, power. Right, exactly. Because Consumer choices matter. Well, I mean, that, that argument can be applied universally to anything in life. Yes. Right. So uh, we often hear about it when it's yeah, time to lose weight. Yeah, I don't think oh, this is right? rocket surgery. Yeah, not, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. So basically we get uh, we get what we've sown, literally, mm -hmm. in, the, in, in the earth. So, um, you know, if we... If we can set aside all the discussions that inhibit us actually making that progress, even in the discussion phase or talking about it mm -hmm. and that, you know, whatever, because we're talking, um, I think, wouldn't you say a lot of this is, it doesn't ever get the, the discussion it needs because um, there is something about when when livelihoods are threatened, or at least perceived to be threatened, perceived to be threatened, that's the funny thing. That um, things get shut down, and so mm -hmm. you know, there's probably a lot of there's probably a lot of great uh, um, moving forward that um, gets stunted and at least delayed for a generation or for a number of years that could have could have actually been a mutual benefit for everyone. Absolutely, um, absolutely. In fact. Uh, if I can connect this dot, I say about, I often say we always end up doing the right thing by the environment. It's just a question of how long does it take and how messed up does it get mm -hmm. and how expensive is it and long to return it back to the way it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, um, so for, well, so in agricultural systems, we, we will, it's just, I don't want to give any specific, I don't want to give some specific answers, uh, uh, examples that create controversy that distracts from sort of the point here. Right. Um, but, um, but for example, uh, profitability in farming and ranching and agriculture, it's difficult, mm. right? So if profitability gets so low that people get out of it, well, we already see this happening. Um, then... Fields go fallow and pastures don't get grazed, and and there is a succession there that it becomes wonderful wildlife habitat. Mm -hmm. But there's a succession because after five ten years, it gets too overgrown mm -hmm. and becomes marginal wildlife habitat. It's probably better wildlife habitat than it was when it was you know a monoculture. How, how does that? How is that? Uh affected regionally like you know we're in texas so L landscape wide but i mean yeah you know because like in texas the undergrowth is a, is a problem right mm -hmm. which i think is what you're talking about over things get overgrown or something overgrown or undergrown or, or undergrown yeah. Yeah. but regionally is there places would would not have that issue we're like i mean wouldn't some places that you know five ten years not a problem even 15 20 yeah so uh so as an example um in 2006 7 Eight, nine, ten, um, in in Shackford County, in this quail region, we lost our quail. Our, you know, quail going boom or bust, but they weren't coming back. 
and we couldn't outfit for them anymore. We couldn't have hunters come in and pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't have bird dogs anymore. Um, uh, it, was, it was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, my granddad wept because he was about 88 years old at the time. And quail hunting kept him young, mm-hmm. getting out and walking and following the dogs. Um, and... Uh, he had his great pair of dogs, and brother and sister, I mentioned them in a story earlier, the male, unfortunately, as often happens in the farm country, was killed, um, got ran over, got out and got ran over, and the female died of a broken heart. Mm. She didn't last a few days. Mm. Um, and, um, and my granddad wept because he said, well, there's no more birds. There's no reason to get another set of dogs, um, I guess I'm done as a quail hunter. I can remember sitting in his living room many times and watching him weep over this. It wasn't a small thing. He saw the end of quail as the end of his life, and he went downhill fast. Fast. Um, I took your kids around and showed them some of the places I used to quail hunt with my granddad. And, and have watched the farming change. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't spray chemicals on cotton fields to get rid of the weeds. We, we hoed the weeds out by hand. Mm-hmm. Some spot spraying, but not mass spraying. Yeah. Well, if there's no more quail, there's no reason to hold off on mass spraying. They just mass spray. Those, that country looks totally different. When I was a kid, you know, there were weeds in the field and weeds on the edges, and those quail lived in it. Cottonfield is a great place to find a covey of quail yeah. if it was pretty weedy and had weedy edges. But now mm-hmm. it's highway, mowed bar ditch, mm-hmm. and then into a perfectly clean cotton field. So actually... So all the bar ditches and yeah. weed edges was quail habitat. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, not that I have a story about it. Uh, I took the kids to, uh, it's called Blue Bonnet Park in uh, Ennis, mm-hmm. and we did photos yesterday afternoon. It's pretty cool. And so, um, on the way out there, uh, driving a country road between Waxahachie to connect to 287 to get to Ennis, um, you know, I'm an artist, mm-hmm. right? And um, I grew up seeing, you see, when you see paintings of uh, Texas and fields and pastures and things, a very common fixture of those paintings is from the ditch to the fence post mm-hmm. and the, the bit of little overgrowth with mm-hmm. some wildflower, wildflowers mm-hmm. and such. And I pointed these out because I had recognized, man, I didn't, hadn't seen this in a long time, just on the roadside. And you can see, can't see it on highways, but you can still see it some. Um, and I had mis- thought, oh, well, that's because, you know, we're, you know, two hours away from where I grew up. And you're helping me realize that it's not necessarily so, but, you know, there was a there's a house that we pass and it had some blue bonnets right there at the entrance, and I was like, "That's a painting somewhere," and we've seen that painting a lot, and it does give us that nostalgic sense of childhood. For and, and what you're telling me, is um, for a reason. For a reason, because for very real sense, um, that went away. That went away, and you know? and and you know, here I'm going to sound like an old person, but my generation. 
and, and all generations can say this about different things, yeah. but to use quail hunting, or at least Rolling Plains, Texas quail hunting, is I'll be the end. You know, I experienced it. But if my kids never experience it, what will be their motivation to do the things that bring back the quail? Now, again, maybe something will happen that'll cause them to come back and then they'll experience it. Because I mean, the flush of a covey of quail stirs the soul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and, and that is my, my childhood hunting experience. Because when I was a kid and I had nothing to do on Saturday, you know, during when we could, you know, get a shotgun mm-hmm. and I can go, I didn't have a bird dog. I just went and scared up the quail. Yeah. And as a kid, I mean, look, I, you know, unsuccessful or not, it was a fun time. Oh my gosh. You know, just incredible. And uh, to say that's gone is, you know, even touches me to think, wow, that is the end of the line of something that was yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it sure is. I mean, my kids should be the fifth generation of folks to quail hunt on the mm-hmm. same property, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, maybe they will again someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter was proud as could be mm-hmm. back during deer season. Uh, we have a patch of pecan trees mm-hmm. on one of our properties, which is where my granddad gave me my first Brittany when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to pick pecans, and he had gotten some puppies. And I had worked all summer on a roofing crew to earn the money to buy one of these puppies from him. And then he gave me the puppy. Real life, uh, where the word, where the red fern grows. Really? I mean, really is. Really. And and so Logan, just this past hunting season, my daughter wanted to get out and pick some pecans when we were driving by, and she got out, and we were stopped in the truck. And I saw something that I couldn't believe I had not seen in so long, I didn't think it was it. Mm. In fact, I thought, look at that. Those field larks sometimes look so much like quail. Mm. And then a single flew by. Now that I was paying attention, that's a quail. Logan had jumped a covey of quail there in what we call the pecan trees, Mm. uh, where I'd gotten my first bird dog. Mm. Hope. Yeah. I have a picture on Earth Day a few years ago. I had my kids, they drew a big poster. We want quail forever. Mm. And and they posted that as their on Earth Day, mm. uh, tagging the organization Quail Forever. Um, and so we kind of have this concept, bird dogs save the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because bird dogs provide the motivation mm-hmm. to manage the land mm-hmm. for the benefit of quail. Quail are a canary in the coal mine. They're called by biologists. Mm-hmm. If, if, if there's no quail, there is something wrong with the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we're called to be stewards of the land, mm-hmm. right? God's mm-hmm. first commission to humankind was to be a good steward of the land. That's right. We... Um, call that dominion, and that word dominion has been used as a justification for extracting and and abusing the land. That was not a misinterpretation of the Bible. That was a misinterpretation of the word or misuse of the word dominion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Poor lordship, poor stewardship, 
versus... The difference, uh, yeah, like a uh, difference in, uh, you know, we talk about good leadership, for example. You can abuse yeah. the you can abuse the people you're over, or you can be a great leader. Yeah, and you have uh, you have the right to be a, right. a terrible leader, to be a dictatorial. Which is leader. why when we went to college, they sat down. One of the first questions in one of our first classes said, "Was was Hitler, was Hitler a leader?" Mm-hmm. You know, and you kind of have all those debates, you know, on purpose and, and just know, a thought experiment. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not trying experiment. to produce a conclusion. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The to you know, um, and so there's a you know. And I use the word abuse, and that was not meant to tie to anything else. But when we take dominion to mean just that, you know absolute control and uh, versus good stewardship. You know, because yeah. I think of the words because uh, subdue can be is taken out of context. You know, that's a word, right? Word. It's very similar. It doesn't you know? mean dominate, right? Subdue, yeah. It, it means um, manage. That's right. Uh, it means manage because I think. Well, the truth is. We, we have to be careful in how we look at dominion and subdue because none of these things are actually ours. Right. That's the point. If they the were actually ours, then have at it. But, but the, the proof that generations have proven from uh, no one can keep it. Well, one of the... So, yeah. I mean, it gets cliche to go, oh, for the next generation and the legacy and, and there are, you know, cliche lines... But, right. they're, but they're cliche because they're simple truths that we can't accept. That's right. So we we're can't give, accept their simplicity. That's right. But it's Again, just that simple. That's why I love Tolkien. That's why I, when I began to really understand what he was talking about when he hated industry, mm-hmm. he wasn't anti-capitalist. But he absolutely saw that there's a point where things become destructive. And that's just what it is. And that's just true. And he, and he, he decided, I'm writing this story. And I'm going to reflect the, the, two, the two sides of this. Okay, we're coming back in. So we have a puppy update. We do have a puppy update. Um, we thought we heard one more being born and went out there to find that three more had been born. Yeah. One, we might have, we don't know exactly, but it was still in the sack. We broke the sack open, wasn't breathing. We gave it a little... Uh, chest compressions, um, and got that one breathing again. And then found, uh, so uh, my maternity ward is not working like I wanted it to. I'd, the kids and I had made a whelping box that would have a lot of room for the puppies to be born in. Tiny did not want to have them there. She wanted to have them in her kennel, which was not prepared as a birthing room. And it had a lot of bedding material in it. And uh, in removing some of that bedding material, we found a, a puppy that was not alive. Probably stillborn. We're not sure. But but just didn't look right in, in all the way, shape, or form. Of course, I don't you know, know what it looked like, but, but anyhow. Um, so that's our update. That's where we're at. Um, so we have jumped around a lot. I wanted to kind of finish a thought. We were, as we were kind of talking while we were out checking on the puppies, um, I can't remember now what you said, but... Um, but I, it made I me... had segued away. I think this would be good coming back. Well, no, no, I guess we got past that thought too. So you know, uh, why don't you jump back in? Well, well one of the things that I thought, so Dale Rollins, um, I keep referring to him, um, he's got these, uh, these youth camps, the Texas Brigades. They started with the Bob White Brigade, 
uh, which is actually first held on a ranch I guided on a few miles from where I grew up uh, one year after I graduated high school. So uh, I, I wonder sometimes how my life might have been different if I'd have gone to a, a Bob White Brigade when I was a kid because mm -hmm. uh, it's something I'm still very passionate about. Because, um, uh, by the way, let me just say this. I, I'm using quail as an example for a lot of different reasons. One, because we're having puppies. Bird dogs save the world. Um, but, but the quail, I believe, by the way, does have a special significance to God in the Bible. Um, what exactly that is, I make jokes about. I guess we couldn't exactly know. But, but God even commanded in the law, by the way, to maintain the brushy, weedy fence rows and to not harvest the corners of the field to provide feed for the birds of the air. And even today, in, in Quail Forever, what's Quail Forever trying to get people to do? Have brushy, weedy fence rows and leave food plots in the corners of their field. Right? It's fascinating. You well, know, let me ask you this. It said uh, food plots in the corner of the field. What is that? What it's is just it? having um, uh, food plots. I just sort of use that term generically. But just making sure that um, some of the... Um, some of the food that's raised in our crops or in our native rangelands is actual yeah. food for, for wildlife. Because it's easy to not realize. You know, um, I didn't even know. Let me give you an example. It's something I didn't even know. Because um, I kept hearing Dale Rollins talk about. Uh, it's loss of habitat. That's what's happened to the quail. Loss of habitat. And I would drive through. You know, there's a, there's a portion of rangeland that I drive through. It's 350,000 acres of rangeland that I thought mm -hmm. from the highway looked just like it always looked. Just like, you know, when there were lots of quail. I found out I was wrong. What I couldn't see from the highway when I would see all this lush grassland, I didn't actually know that the ranchers had started spraying chemicals on that ranch land to kill the quote-unquote weeds, like ragweed, which is one of the primary food crops of quail. You know, now I'm not knocking on the ranchers, but again, if there's no quail, why not get rid of the ragweed? If there's quail, okay, fine, we'll keep the ragweed, you know, because we, maybe we like hunting the quail, or maybe we can lease the land to quail hunters to pay for that. Um, you know, they got to monetize it. No knock on that. That's why having the quail matters, you know. Um, and, and so what I was going to say about the Bob White Brigades real quick is one of the things that, that we're kind of wondering about. So now it started with Bob White Brigades. Now there's Buckskin Brigades and Waterfowl Brigade, Coastal Brigade, a bunch of different things. And there's some worry with the Bob White Brigade because I've heard Dale Rollins say uh, through, I think, his podcast or something. I don't know him personally. I'd love to. Um, you know, back in the 90s, a kid came to Bob White Brigade because his dad and granddad quail hunted. Now kids come to Bob White Brigade never seen a bird dog, never been behind a bird dog, never, you know, which is cool in a way because they don't have a personal connection with it but scary because at some point one of the personal connection get lost and and then the motivation is gone um because the bob white is is 
the perfect grazing manager. Uh, there's a saying that was invented for sage grouse, but I think it applies to quail very well. What's good for the bird is good for the herd. Because when you overgraze, that's bad for the cattle eventually too. Quail keep us in check on that. You know, if there's enough, if there's enough grass to hide a quail, uh, but but just enough, need to pull those cattle off. Need to leave about a third of the grass. If there's so much grass that a quail can't run around because it's too thick, well, that's rank. We need to get some cattle in there and graze that out because the grass can actually die if it gets grown up too much, kind of choke itself out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and then this is good for our bodies, by the way, because not to get controversial, but we just know for a fact that grass-fed, well-managed beef is healthier for our bodies than, than otherwise. You know, um, and uh, so, you know, these things all work together whether I'm doing a good job of connecting the dots or not. Um, and so hunt fish thrive hunting fishing if that we were talking about something that more directly related there uh, provides this catalyst to manage the land well but managing the land well will happen when the consumer feeds that management of the land Uh, the consumer has to get that though for a reason right why do i care what i'm buying well it could be from love uh, love of heritage of quail hunting love of, of hunting themselves biophilia which gets talked about a lot which is just love of the land that back to that dominion thing um but it could be the motivation of love of good nutrition for their bodies or whatever you know um but that that bottom-up catalyst that's just on my flow chart uh, you know that hadn't seemed to work um by bottom up, are you saying just letting things take its course? Um, is that what, that, what you mean by that? Well, yeah, I, I, I just kind of spit that out and didn't maybe or is it think by, that out. Is it like um, the, the grassroots movements of things? They, they make a splash, and maybe eventually there'll they'll be enough momentum there to provide landscape-wide changes. Okay. Um, but 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 as is common with things in this world, doing it because it's the right thing or, or or whatever doesn't seem to provide enough momentum. Um, I mean, this is I don't know if I'm going to go from a tiny little thing quail to elephants. I mean, we just know for a fact that as countries have made elephant hunting illegal, then they lose their elephants. And the countries that have refused to to sort of join the crowd and 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 stop elephant hunting, their elephants are flourishing. Mm. You know, because if if you've got some motivator mm-hmm. to maintain all that, then mm-hmm. let's do that. Um, but if you remove that motivator, well, then an elephant can wipe your corn crop out in, in thirty minutes. You know, so kill the elephant. Mm. You know, may not poach him yourself, but when the yeah. poachers come through town and say, you seen any elephants? You say, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of elephants right down there. So do you see that there's a, do you see the exercise of a comprehensive um, discussion 
happening where the wrestling of you know these things from one from one side to another and from all these aspects because we've talked about it from from industry um, there's conservation um, there's science seems mm -hmm. like a lot of people need to be around the table yeah you know and I you know that be representatives or whatnot but um, but all mutually trying to benefit each other not being the um, I think a lot of times um, uh, what's it called when you send someone to Washington for your cause? What's the uh, lobby? uh, lobbyist? Yeah, like yeah. instead of everyone being a lobbyist, you get nothing wrong with that. But mm. if everyone's a lobbyist around the table, then it's kind of like my thing, and my thing needs to be heard. Uh, but if if everyone and I use the table, you whatever, there's no table. No, I know what you mean. You're saying, but you sometimes do have to get a number of people around the table to discuss these things. No, uh, these advocates to understand that we're all advocating for each other's mutual um, sustainability and existence and, and thriving. And well, here, here, right? here, here's the, what just came to mind as you said it, and and I tell my clients sometimes that uh, uh, I'm about to say something cheesy. Just prepare yourself, but prepare. I'm but I'm a counselor, so I, I yeah. we professionally are licensed to say cheesy things. Um, okay, what we need is not lobbying; we need love. Yeah. We don't need lobbyists. We need lovers. Mm. Um, when, when you love something, you love it. And that's hard to argue. And I believe in the conservation community. In fact, there's a, a podcast clip that I have queued up that I want to play for you. Uh, Randy Newberg and Shane Mahoney are doing a series on the North American model of conservation. And I'm behind. I'm only on episode two. And, uh, and, and Randy asked Shane, do you believe that science is still the primary driving force of the North American model of conservation? Because it's one of the tenets mm -hmm. is that the decisions should be made based on science. Well, I pause it immediately and, you know, go on my little tirade with myself. Not tirade, but just sort of some th thought and talking about... It is science, but including the science of psychology and sociology, and maybe even philosophy and theology, um, which I believe are in some ways sciences. Now, we've seen psychology and sociology misused in the decision-making of hunting and fishing. But that was just where they got politicized. That wasn't right. sociology. It was sociopolitics. Right. Um, and... and so I kind of say some of this to myself, and then I hit play again on the podcast, mm -hmm. and Shane Mahoney, God love him, says, yes, I believe science is still the driver of the North American model of conservation, but those sciences need to include the study of the human dimensions that affect hunting and fishing. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. Because I truly believe that that's the next iteration. I think it takes us full circle back to dominion and subduing. Yes. Because what are, what is the reason for all of this? Because we had dominion right. that was dominant. Right. Moving to, I cut you off, I apologize, but moving, but you helped me connect the dots, yeah. moving to a dominion that's where, where I would use the word stewardship right. that's based on love. Mm -hmm. Right? That's right. But what do we love? I loved walking through the fields with my granddad.
mm-hmm. following bird dogs. That's exactly, yeah, you're saying it way better than I wanted to. I didn't yeah. love killing a quail. Right. I love eating a quail. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not enough love either, mm-hmm. right? It's the love of legacy. And then seeing that that legacy existed maybe accidentally, mm-hmm. but now, you know, it's just the way it was. We had lots of quail. Mm-hmm. but that we can recreate it to exist on purpose. Mm-hmm. There may be another puppy out there. There may be. We probably need yeah. to go check. Let's do it. Um, um, can you, you want to tie it off and say it's the end? So uh, let's say if you were to... Can you, can you summarize? In one, or if we do a part two, can we do... A well, two? here's the way I want to summarize. Here's yeah. what comes to mind. I wanted to ask you about it. We'll just talk for a moment. Sure. Earlier, we walked out into the maternity ward, Yeah. and I... I uh, was trying to resuscitate this puppy, yeah. and I was pushing on its side, right. and foamy bubbles were coming out of its mm-hmm. little slimy nose. Mm-hmm. I, I was acting all cool, by the way, during that, but I am a little bit squeamish, and it was super gross. I'm going to be really honest. <laughs> and, and I was also thinking, I'm, am I going to have to breathe into this dog's mouth? Um, yeah. As you were, I don't know if you were picture-taking or recording, but recording video. Uh, you became very emotional. Mm-hmm. And I love that about you. You've become emotional numerous times during many of our podcasts, mm-hmm. sort of behind the scenes. You don't start weeping and wailing or whatever. And I call you out on it. Yeah. But, it but, but I believe it's because and it allows me to experience some of this stuff anew through, through your good heart. Mm-hmm. But do you mind just sharing with me yeah, sure. and maybe us? Because there's maybe yeah. bird dogs save the world, right? What was happening yeah. as you saw that little sure. bird dog puppy? A little orange and white dog. Well, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a movie lover. I, I, one of the things I wanted to do was grow up and work for Disney. Um, I think films at their best elicit. They're like the what you say when you like, hey, the they're the catalyst. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're a catalyst to get to the point where you said it wasn't about the hunting; it was about being with my granddad. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what it is, and so. Um, that's what films do for us, mm-hmm. and that's Narrative. what movies do us. And so when we're out there, and you were doing that, um, um, I immediately going, okay, I've seen 101 Dalmatians a million times, and I thought this puppy was dead. Roger's working, and he's he's talking to the puppy, and I don't have it memorized. And in the in there, I mean, he may even put his hand together. He might, I can't remember if he blew in it or he's touching. He's doing something. It doesn't make sense to whatever. Uh, to go from lifeless to first breath. And to connect that to, you know, I'm a dad. Every moment I was there in the room and the, you know, when, uh, when, when my, you know, all my kids were born. Um, and so I think all these are, are tied together. But it's, uh, it's, it's a puppy and it's, it's a dog, but it's life, right? Life. Really new, right? Uh, we recently lost our pug to the highway. That's right. Let me tie it to another Disney movie. So, I mean, here in Texas, things have just... It went from winter to immediately spring. It was like spring could not happen. It was very late. At least it felt late. It held on, held on, held on, So all of a sudden. So, uh, iconically made fun of, it's cliche, is the movie Bambi and and what I'm about to mention. But I'm going to talk about it from from a sense of of, of, uh, genius storytelling. So you have the scene, the famous scene where Bambi's mom, the hunter, you know, gets Bambi's mom or whatever. 
uh, Bambi's like, mother, mother, you know, like you, these, like making this, you know, makes you. Just, uh, yeah, I'm you laughing know, at the anthem. You know, right. But, but the thing is, like the, the baby, mother, mother. I mean, it's literally like pulling your heartstrings on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bambi's dad shows up and says, come with me, right? Now, I bring that up because you had, that was the culmination. That was the climax of winter. Bambi was born in the spring. They go to fall. They get into the dead of winter. They can't find food. There's nothing. There's nothing on the trees. There's nothing. It looks more as winter. But when that movie fades to black, when you see, when you see Bambi go to his dad, and it fades to black, okay? And good storytelling knows that when you have a very, very solemn, very serious, very heart-wrenching thing, uh, you, you need to, you have to bring, bring it back out, okay? You have to bring it up. Mm-hmm. And so very masterfully, masterfully, you had the loss of, Bam, of Bambi's mom in the dead of winter. There's nothing alive, right? Everything's dead, like his mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, then spring comes again. It's the second time we've spring, seen spring in the movie, right? Which is what? New life, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then you see whatever. So when, when we lost our pug, again, we don't have, these are not hunting dogs. This is our pug to, to the road, and everything was still dead. The grass was brown, and the trees had nothing. Mm. Uh, and we lost him. And a few weeks later, I see this, and I thought of that movie, and I said, maybe somebody lost their dog who worked on that story because they knew something. We can still learn a lot of great lessons. And I said, I feel that that was a end of a time where that winter ended when our dog died. And then new life began. And so watching that puppy... Take that first breath. Just further, just underscored all of this for me. Yeah. Of being in a new, in new life and a new spring. Because I didn't share, which I was going to. I said, hey, I learned my philosophy about dogs in general, maybe pets in general, but definitely dogs in general, that I learned way later, later about um, from the movie Old Yeller. Again, sorry, Disney, right? But yeah. from Old Yeller. Yeah. As a kid, I loved that movie. Oh, yeah. Um, not going to lie, um, I often would skip the scene where he had to shoot Old Yeller, and then I would watch the end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it took me many years to realize what that, what, I always never understood. They just, did they want to tack on a happy ending by, you know, the girl, his girlfriend, if you will, says, um, guess what? Old Yeller was, you know, out and about, and this is, here's a pup. From his, this is this is Old Yeller's, you know, next Savage Sam, right? And said, uh, and he and I forget Art. What's his name? Not Arliss, the older brother. I can't remember the older brother's name. It might be. It might be one of them. One of them was named Arliss, and he said, "No, it's not Old Yeller. Look at the stupid dog, you know, or whatever he said, right?" Uh, but he grew to love the dog, and then it plays the Old Yeller song, and you see this dog growing up or whatever. Um, it told the same story. It told the same story of a life cycle. Life begins, and you have life, and then there's death, but then there's life again, right? And so the, the lesson I learned was, is that embracing that cycle that, um, one, probably the, <laughs> the problem is having one dog, because you don't have another one to comfort you if you lose one. Mm-hmm. And so, um, anyways, it is cliche. It is a little circle of life kind of, of reminiscent and thinking, connecting dots together. So... That's what Herman Fish is so much about. I'm just, yeah. I'm just describing 
the connecting the points of all those things that well up emotion that were all happening at the same time and to see the puppy breathe life when actually I wasn't gonna I didn't know if the puppy was gonna live yeah. but when it did you know and then you think of like Ian Malcolm life finds a way you know yeah right yeah uh, you yeah. know from Jurassic Park if you even you know right which is about to come out with Dominion you. by the way it's about to come out in June I'm glad you because at first I didn't have any idea what yeah, you were talking yeah. about now <laughs> you, you gave okay well Jurassic I started Park. I started wrong by mentioning the yeah. character's name right what's, what's his name um, uh, 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 the actor I always forget Gold Gold Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum yeah, right? classic you yeah, know classic. so good right but uh, that was the iconic life finds a way right yeah. that was the whole point yeah. Um, and so anyways, all those things going in and I always try, I mean, you know, maybe life's a movie for me and I'm connecting these things where I'm just finding where life was taken and put into film. And well, I think that's where, that, that's, that's, that's where, that's where we basically can, um, you know, find that, uh, where we really can relate deep. Yeah. And, and, in hunting and fishing bring, uh, Absolutely. those narratives, living, living yeah. the narrative. Yeah, I, I saw a painting in my head when you said you and your grandpa, and I saw a grandfather and his grandson in a painting. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, it brings uh, a lot yeah. of emotion up for you. You know? Um, yeah, for sure. Well, let's... Um, gosh, you said so many good things there I wanted to comment well, we are, we are, we, if we If we continue the conversation, that's great. I don't think anybody have a problem with it. But yeah. um, where, what, would, what, would be, what would be the, um, the thing you would want to... To tie off from um, the theory of everything, if you were to say, "Hey, I'm going to pause it from here and say, if if our audience had one thing to take away from you, this this theory of everything, from conservation to the catalyst of being out and hunting and fishing to the supply and demand to the to all of those things together, maybe you wrote yeah. a note. Maybe you wrote uh, a note on it. Yeah, I did. Um, see if I can find it here." Um, but basically the gist, I don't have it in front of me. Um, the reason I guess it, for me it's a theory of everything is uh, because it's an act of worship, to be quite honest. Um, I believe it's an act of good economics. I believe it's a, 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 an act of all kinds of things, but ultimately an act of worship. Uh, and that's what makes it so fascinating, so fulfilling, so... Um, so filled with love, um, and and cuts to our emotions, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why. And and then and then the more we practice those things, in the hunting and fishing realm, uh, the more they benefit so many other aspects of our life. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That didn't seem that didn't seem super no. profound, but well, and I'll say this is that yesterday, so. We don't have, I don't know, we just have like everybody else, I guess. We don't have satellite and cable. We just have whatever different streaming services we have. Um, unrelated tie that I would, I would say relates to all these things is uh, yesterday after church and before going and, and shooting pictures of the kids in the park, uh, turned on uh, Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. And if, you don't, if you're not worried about what you're going to watch, like a particular team, we sat and watched live baseball so me and the boys sat there and i do not get couch time but yesterday i got some couch time yeah and we watched baseball well why even bring that up because i think it we've often we've often talked about hey you know the 
the love of the game and all those movies and then the natural and everything it comes from the same place. Mm-hmm. It ties us and brings us back to the same place. And uh, and it was as it was as you know. I don't know what you say. So like, uh, there's the idealized version of things, and then some mm-hmm. romanticized version of it. Mm-hmm. Yesterday was a day we're watching baseball with the boys. It was as romanticized as you mention, mm-hmm. or as you think it will be when you you know when you watch the natural. Like, oh, every time you play catch with your son, that's how it, you know it should be as romanticized as that, and it can be. Hmm. Doesn't always happen that way. Let me end with one last little yeah. story on that note. A few years ago, so so we gave up on the quail. Mm-hmm. My granddad's bird dogs died. Um, I had a young bird dog. I quit working with him. Um, we moved our quail hunting operation to Mexico and, and quail hunted there for a few years. And that's a whole other story. But um, in 2016, we got a bunch of rain and the quail we're all of a sudden there again. Actually, interesting enough, not in our immediate area, but in some others. Nobody could find any good bird dogs. Everybody, hmm. and oh my gosh, if you could find some dogs, they were expensive. Hmm. Um, I couldn't find any. It's kind of two stories I'm telling. That's kind of an aside, actually. But I uh, went dove hunting. My granddad had passed away that summer. And I remember, I guess just with the way you were talking about the baseball game made me think of, I was actually, huh, I was right there at the pecan trees again. Mm-hmm. Drinking a cold one, cleaning my limit of doves mm-hmm. by myself. Mm-hmm. By myself. It was kind of awesome and kind of sucked. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. I had just had an yeah. epic day of hunting. Mm-hmm. On land that was now mine. Hmm. But no granddad, no one. Hmm. Right? Now my kids, that was before my kids were born. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. I don't know. Something in your baseball story made me think of that. Mm-hmm. I got to go check on some puppies. Yep, it's in. All right, man. Thank you again for joining us episode seven of the hunt fish thrive podcast you can connect with us on instagram at hunt fish thrive where we're active there you can connect with us email us you can email mickey mickey at huntfishthrive.com and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode take care